I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller. Across America, local newspapers were once an important part of the fabric of everyday life. They were the chronicler and the town crier for everything that happened in a community. My guest on this episode is Brian Kowalski, who writes under the name B.C. Kowalski. He's a journalist living in the small Midwestern city of Wausau, Wisconsin. Brian's going to explain how reporting the local news has changed since he began as a brand new reporter at a small daily newspaper a decade ago. We'll also learn about the innovative ways he's making local journalism fresh and relevant in an age in which both homogenized and highly politicized news is the norm. Right. So like what, what happens is when you start, it's kind of a, it's kind of a downward spiral. So what happens is, you know, the revenues start dropping. So the company says, all right, well, we got to start cutting things, but then you cut things, you cut your product down and then you start losing subscribers, you start losing advertisers. And it's, a, it's a cycle that continues and they never saw it. They'd say every time they'd be like, oh yeah, well, we cut out the crossword puzzle because, well, people can get that online. My point was always, yeah, but they're not. They're getting it through you. But now you cut it out. You just you just sent those subscribers away. Like we do with every episode, Act One is the past. Tell me about your hometown. Well, the funny thing about Wasa was a place where you you really never encountered people who were like, oh yeah, I like being here. This is great. I think that's changed today. So that's a good thing. But uh, and still today, you know, a lot of what happens in Wausau is you, you don't have a four-year college. That was a decision made by the, the powers that be a long time ago. So and I think that's had an effect on Wausau ever since. So people, when you grow up here, if you have ambitions, most likely you're probably going to have to leave. And I think that's true even today, even though I think that to a lesser extent, I think there's more opportunity, but there's still no four-year school. So what you get is a lot of people who live here, they move away, probably go to a bigger city, meet their wife, have kids, and then the kids get to eh, right about the time they're going to start going to school. And the parents think, hmm, you know, that Wausau wasn't so bad when, in terms of like raising a kid. It might not be the most exciting place in the world, but it's safe. So then they move back and they get jobs here and we call it the boomerang effect, but it's pretty common here. So it's it's interesting growing up here. I think the, the original term Wausau, I think, means... Uh, a faraway place, and I don't know, there's something kind of, uh, it's kind of a nowhere land, or at least it was, maybe it still is, I don't know. Introduce us to your parents. What was family life like? Well, neither of my parents are the super creative type, and my sister and I were both, I don't want to say gifted, that'd be a wrong word, but we both, we both had proclivities toward writing, art, that kind of thing. And so, and, and my parents often wondered, like, where did that come from? <laughs> because they didn't really have it. And no one in our family really seemed to have that. Although I did some tracing and the uh, the French guy who came up with the Aesop, original Aesop fables uh, shared a last name of my French ancestor. So 
it could be just a fun story, but I like it nonetheless. Otherwise, I would say they were very by-the-book kind of people. I think they've kind of veered away from that a little bit in retirement, but they were, they were very much people that like to have everything planned out and know where they're going to go. And I probably have a little bit of that in me too, but then I think I veer off from that in some ways too. I've always taken a very non-traditional path in life, and I think that kind of vexed my, my parents a bit. Okay, let's fast forward a bit to high school. What did you dream of doing with your life? Well, you know, that's funny because um, I actually really, really dreamed about being a writer. And even going back to junior high, even, I started writing, I started writing stories and I would put my friends in them. And I remember, I remember one crucial mistake that I made when I was in junior high. And it's a little bit embarrassing now to think about, but, you know, when you're in junior high, you do stupid stuff and you don't know any better. Like, I, I put one of my female friends in, I made her almost kind of a ditz. And just kind of like stereotypical, like, you know, this is like the not early 90s. So I'm still coming off the 80s wave where there was a lot of stereotyping. I remember she kind of called me out on it. And I, the, the, I think that stuck with me. That was sort of a formative time period. But I also received a lot of, like, my friends really enjoyed the stories. Like, they liked reading them. And I remember that, I don't know, There's, a, I think there's a power to that. Like, there was part of me that thought, like, oh, yeah, maybe I could do this. Was college an expectation in your family, or was it something that was internally motivated on your part? I think I went to school the first time because it was expected of me, and I think I went back as an adult because I wanted to. I went initially. I took a semester off and just worked, and then I went I went back because it seemed to be the thing like you were supposed to do. And It was funny when I dropped out, a lot of people told me, oh, don't drop out, you'll never go back, and... You know, like a lot of things people tell you, they usually don't know what they're talking about. You know, going back as an adult was great because I really wanted to do it. I wanted to be there. I'd gotten a taste of what life was like without college. And so I was more motivated and it no longer felt like you were being forced to do it. You know what I mean? Like it felt like it felt like I can explore my curiosities now and the funny thing is, toward the end of my college career, especially since I was part-time because it was non-traditional, I had to support myself while doing it, toward the end it did start feeling like hoop jumping again, and so I knew it was time to be to graduate and be done. And Up until that point, I know there was, there was some people encouraging me to, uh, to seek out grad school, but I, I think it was pretty much over it by the time I got my undergrad. So at what point did you decide you wanted to make a living as a journalist? Well, actually, it was when I went back to school. I didn't go back to school to be a journalist. I went back to school because I just wanted something else. I wanted a different life, and I thought school could give that to me, and I guess it really did in a lot of ways. So I, I did I did, um, I did, did have interest in writing, so I I remember like seeking out the forum editor at the time, and I, I thought maybe I'd do like some music and movie reviews, and I got, a, I got an okay to do some of that stuff, but then... Uh, I learned that the senator at the time, Russ Feingold, was coming to town. And I thought, well, what if I interviewed him? That'd be that'd be something, huh? That's something different. I never tried that before. So my first ever interview of my career was with a U.S. senator, with Senator Feingold. And I think it went pretty well. Uh, I wrote the story, and I was, I guess, surprised. Other people were surprised that I kind of got the news tone and kind of the structure fairly close to what it should be. 
you know, I probably would have, I don't, I don't know if it's super different than how I would do it today, to be honest, with that kind of thing. But I remember going, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't interviewing Russ that was made an impression on me. It was these, uh, these, these Vietnam vets who were attending. And I remember speaking to them and they were so excited to talk to me. And I realized that doing this, I had the ability to tell their story in a way that probably no one else really heard before. And that, that's kind of what I left, I left that day with, that's, that's something, man. I'd like to do more of that. And uh, for, pretty much from there, it was gung-ho. I mean, I, so I don't know if a lot of people know this, but I didn't pursue a journalism degree. And in fact, I only took one journalism class. I mostly learned from being in newsrooms because, when I, you know, UWMC didn't really have a lot of journalism classes. They had a great teacher, uh, Mark Parman, and I learned a lot just from talking to him. I did take one of his classes, but mostly it was just being, you know, in the student paper and working with Mark. And then I job shadowed at the Daily Herald. So I got a lot of experience doing that because then that led to freelancing. Then that led to like a part-time job at the Herald, then a part-time job at City Pages. And then I started my full-time job when I graduated Point. So I really got a, I really got an apprenticeship. And that's kind of how that unfolded. Your first full-time reporting job was at the Stevens Point Journal after interning for a bit at the Wausau Daily Herald. What was going through your mind when you walked into the newsroom for the first time? You know, it's pretty overwhelming because when I worked in the sports department at the Herald, I'd get, you know, most most of my job was taking calls from coaches and just writing these short little things based on what they told me. And so, I don't know, you take like 10 to 20 of those a night. And then every once in a while, they'd assign me a story. So I'd have a couple of weeks to work on it, maybe, or maybe like a week and a half, maybe a week. But this was like, you know, the expectation was at least one story a day. I think they wanted two, actually. Plus, like, uh, you, I think every, it was either every other or every third week, you were supposed to have like a, like a Sunday feature. And that was pretty overwhelming because that's a lot to do. You know, today, today it probably wouldn't be that overwhelming because I understand how to gather news. And how to um, how to follow up on things and like there's just sort of a rhythm to it. But when you're brand new, it feels like a lot. So I, I guess the first day I was I was uh, I was pretty overwhelmed. You know, many of us only know about what reporters do from popular culture, where they're not always portrayed in the best light. How often do people you interview come to the conversation ready to be defensive? I would say actually not not as much as you might think. Uh, the way the way it's always depicted, you know, you think everyone hates us. And the biggest challenge probably was at the Stevens Point Journal because people remembered the paper in its glory days when it was really thick and had a lot of stuff in it. They had numerous reporters. And what you would usually encounter, well, I'll say when you encounter that, there's usually a reason outside of you. It's either the paper itself, people don't like it for various reasons. Uh, with the journal, people didn't like it because they, they didn't like, they, they felt like Gannett really ruined it. And it's probably not unfair, to be honest. Um, people remembered. This is Gannett, the parent company. Gannett was the parent company of yeah. the journal and the Herald yeah. here and all that. Um, so you're usually dealing with that or, or some reporter wronged them in the past. I remember this one city council member was, 
I, he just seemed like he really didn't like me. He wouldn't speak to me, but he'd get mad if he'd get mad saying I always spoke to other people and put them in the paper. I'm like, yeah, well, you have to speak to me. <laughs> like, like talk to him after after a council meeting once. And I was like, well, what's up with this man? I'm like, I, like I've never, I don't know that I've ever done anything to you. And he's like, then he told me the story. Like apparently he, this reporter before me had wanted to speak to him for a story, was really adamant about it. Um, he was supposed to go out of town, but he canceled his plans and to meet this guy on a Saturday and the guy never showed up. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry that happened. Like I would never do something like that. And unless there was some kind of emergency, but, um, so, you know, I, I empathize with that, but I think ever since then, you know, we were never like best of buddies, but you know, I think he, I think he kind of softened his position a little bit, but most people, the way I always describe it is most people are on their best behavior. You, you know, you know, deep down they're showing you their best possible self because they want to look good in print or whatever. And it's a natural instinct. It makes sense. So it's, it's actually pretty rare that I encounter hostility. The closest I ever got to being a journalist myself was delivering the evening paper in my small town. But it was a big deal. I mean, people would be on their porch waiting for it because it had all the news about what was going on. I'm wondering, when did you begin to realize yourself that local journalism was diminishing or even in danger of going away entirely? <laughs> Probably kind of from day one, to be honest. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's interesting that that you bring that up about the evening papers, because I kind of forgot that the Daily Herald used to be an evening one. And they used to be, when I was a kid, you know, my parents liked to travel around the U.S., Back then, we would always take trips to different cities in the U.S., and my favorite thing was to pick up the paper in each city. And I liked how they all seemed a little different. They all kind of took a different approach to it. And then eventually, I would start picking them up, and they just didn't seem to have the local flavor anymore. After a while, I wasn't really, I got older and I wasn't going on the trip, so my parents would bring them back, and I would read them. and they all just kind of seem the same. They just stopped seeming interesting to me and until later I thought about why they stopped seem, seeming interesting. It's because they all look basically the same. And, you know, 2010, what a great time to start your first full-time journalism job. But it was funny because we started, when I started, I was one of four reporters. There was a city editor, a managing editor, two sports reporters, you know, a whole bunch of salespeople. I mean, there probably was... 20 almost 25 employees in the whole building when i left i was one of two reporters we had one front desk person i think one salesperson one sports reporter and we shared an editor with wausau and now i think there's there's basically a person down there given all that do you think there's still an audience for local daily papers yes if it's local <laughs> that's the key element Right. So like what, what happens is when you start, it's kind of a, it's kind of a downward spiral. So what happens is, you know, the revenues start dropping. So the company says, all right, well, we got to start cutting things, but then you cut things, you cut your product down and then you start losing subscribers. You start losing advertisers and it's a, it's a cycle that continues and they never saw it. They'd say every time they'd be like, oh yeah, well, we cut out the crossword puzzle because, well, people can get that online. My point was always, yeah, but they're not. They're getting it through you. But now you cut it out. You just you just sent those subscribers away. It was just a death spiral. 
Mm. You can't, you can't cut, you can cut temporarily, but you can't cut your way to prosperity. That's, that's true of any business. You know, if you, you have books for sale, if you start cutting out the books you sell, you said, oh, I can't afford to publish them. So I'm only going to publish one every five years. Well, you're cutting your revenue too, you know, or uh, I'm going to, I'm not going to spend any money on editing or. So I think people, I, I really do think there's an appetite for local news, but what they don't want to see is they don't want to see your paper has like one local story and then 20 stories from like all over the state or maybe even other places in the Midwest. Like they want to buy the lo- they'll pay for the local news when they can get the actual local news. So to reach this audience, what are the journalistic endeavors you're engaged in these days? So I'm currently the editor of, uh, of the City Pages. It's a free weekly. Then I have the Wassonian, which is a local newsletter, kind of a supplement to the City Pages. So every Thursday I deliver out kind of a summary of the news and the sports and business and entertainment going on. And then I do, usually on the weekend, I do a long-form story that's just for paid subscribers. Not all of them. Sometimes I do them for everybody. I'm trying to do a mix. I haven't really, I'm still playing around with the, the formula there. So uh, so there's that. And then I have the Keep It Awesome podcast, for which you've been a guest. And that's that's something that's that's fun for me. The scheduling is not so fun, but the rest of it is. So yeah, you're keeping busy. What's driving this passion to keep journalism local? Hmm. I think there's a demand for it. I think people want it, and I think it's I think it's important because I think you can't just get your information from like like Facebook or something, right? Like, I mean, you can, but you're getting you're getting kind of a skewed view when you take stuff off of Facebook. You're probably getting stuff out of context. And you're not getting stuff that's done with reporting standards. I'm a big fan of the idea that journalism doesn't have to come from institutions. But I think it does have to adhere to a standard. Because if it doesn't, and you see a lot of stuff around that doesn't, then I don't think you're, I don't think you're getting an informed viewpoint. Now, you can take that informed viewpoint and go in a lot of different directions, and a lot of people do, and that's fine. But... I've always taken inspiration from people like Walter Cronkite, who everyone trusted. It didn't matter what side of the political aisle you were from, because he adhered to a very strict standard for himself, and he did have he did have a political viewpoint. It's easier you now. It's easier for me because I'm pretty centrist anyway, so it's not very hard for me to yeah, be, you know yeah. kind of impartial because I kind of am in the middle a lot of times. But so I I, I try to take that approach. It, doesn't always go over well. The people are people are far more partisan. At least they are online than they used to be. So that's interesting. I remember during a during the whole Act Ten fiasco with Scott Walker and all that. Um, I was called a liberal activist disguised as a journalist and one of Scott Walker's henchmen on the same day. You're also involved in something called FIRE. Oh, yeah. What is FIRE and how does it fit into your aspirations? So FIRE, for people who don't know, it's, it stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And the idea is that if you reduce your 
you're spending and you save and invest the excess, you can probably retire a lot earlier than you think. Now, people hear the word retirement and they think, you know, sipping my ties on the beach and playing golf or whatever. And people that are identify as fire or in that in that realm understand the word a little differently. The idea is really they they see retirement as just simply not needing to work a 40-hour job. So so really a lot of people focus on the financial independence aspect of it. And what's cool about it is the further along you go, the more independence you gain. You know, so your first step is probably to get out of debt. So it's a very free, freeing feeling when you realize you don't have any debt. Uh, and then the next stage is when you start, you start really building up like a good emergency fund or enough that enough in your investments that you essentially have one. Um, that's sort of an unpop unpopular opinion. I don't keep like a huge emergency fund. I just sell off assets if I really need it because most of the time I think I don't. So that's that's freeing because now suddenly your car breaks down. You just take a little money out of the out of your cash and and then the next the next step is where you start building up. You know, there's kind of a kind of a long period in there, and then you start building up some real net worth. And maybe you don't have enough where you could right off into the sunset, but you have enough where, like, say, if you lost your job tomorrow, you'd be fine for a few years. That's freeing because you feel like at your job, you can be a little more aggressive and assertive. You're not as worried. It, it's it's weird. It works. It's like if you, you just feel more psychological power, even though you probably wouldn't want to. Like, I wouldn't want to leave my job now and have to rely on that money because I feel like I'd be going backwards a little bit. I like the idea that that cushion is there if I have to. And it's more freeing than being like, oh my God, if I lost a job tomorrow, I'd be just, you know, up, up the creek without a paddle, you know? And then, of course, the, the final stage of that is when you actually hit the point where if you were able to withdraw 4% of your returns every year, you would, your portfolio would stay intact. So it just makes sense. It's like, well, most people save 5% or maybe 10%, but if you get up to where you're saving 50%, you know, the, it just happens a lot sooner. But it's really popular amongst the millennials, particularly, and probably Gen Z now, too. I suppose they're getting to that age. But um, a lot of the people who are writing about it are at the millennial age. So I'd say it's getting pretty, pretty popular. In thinking about the future, there's probably been a BC Kowalski 2.0, maybe even 3.0. What will version 4.0 look like? You know, that's a good question. And my answer is going to be kind of bad because I'm going to say, like, I'm not really sure. Throughout various points of my life, I had a vision of what future me would be like, and it usually didn't end up like that. I never envisioned being a journalist. I definitely never envisioned being a podcaster. Or I never envisioned uh, the idea of having a paid newsletter didn't exist. I think I'm at a stage where I don't think about it too much. Um, I mean, Brian, Brian Kowalski 4.0 will probably be financially independent, but I don't, I don't know what he's going to be doing beyond that. I want to thank Brian Kowalski for joining us today, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Our podcast is produced by Eclectic River Daydream. 
You've heard from us, and now we want to hear from you. Leave us feedback on our website at storypod.us or on Facebook at American Storyteller. Until the next time you hear from me, I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller.